Welcome. Uh, if you are new or newish to Summit Drive, my name is uh, Dave. I'm our lead pastor here, and I just want to welcome you to our admittedly kind of weird world of the online worship service. We know it's not ideal, but for the time being, this is where we are. And so we're trusting that God is going to still be speaking to you in and through all that's happening today. You know, this is a time of year when people are making commitments. You know the kind of commitments, right? Often to better physical uh, practices, being physically fit, which is a wonderful thing, at least on one level. Not that I'm doing it or anything, but... um, Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy. I, I want to share this with you as we begin today. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 8, he says this. I'm, I'm going to quote it from the New Living Translation because it captures it so well. It says, do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. If Paul only knew what the landscape of Twitter and Facebook discussions looked like today, oh boy. I think he would just lean into this even more. But he says, don't, don't get sidetracked by arguments over godless ideas, old wives' tales. But, listen to what he says, spend your time and energy in training yourself for spiritual fitness. Physical exercise has some value. It's true, it does. But spiritual exercise is much more important, Paul says, for it promises a reward in this life. It's true. It's in this one as well. And he says, the next. This is true, and everyone should accept it. You'll notice it begins with warning of what not to give our attention to in this moment. Instead, he says, get on with your physical, not just physical, pardon me, your spiritual fitness. And that's really what our series, Lovers in a Dangerous Time, is all about. The subtitle goes on to say it's, it's everyday habits for faith formation. It's about posturing ourselves so that we can receive from God the kinds of things He wants to change and deepen in us, forming us, shaping us, so we reflect and resemble our Father God, so we become more like our loving leader, Jesus, as we follow Him. So again, if you're new or newish to Summit, um, I believe since 2003, we've been doing a yearly gift book study. This is where we gift you a book, and everyone in our community uh, reads it together, studies it in your life group, we preach on the topics, and uh, it's been a great way for us to focus on our five core values as a church. This year, we're leaning into the value of spiritual growth. And I wrestled with how we were going to do it this year. Like, we're not meeting right now, at least, in person. And even our life groups, um, we can't meet in homes at the moment. Oh, man, my heart aches for when we can again. So I was just trying to pray through and creatively think of a way that we could work through a series on spiritual growth together that maybe looks a bit different than it used to. And so here's how we're going to try to uh, creatively make this work. Instead of giving a book out uh, where you physically come and grab a copy, we're going to be emailing out a chapter each week of our guidebook that, that I've been working on. And each week you'll get either in an email or you can download it from our webpage, a copy of um, the set of practices that we're going to be working through as a church. 
And so you can expect that that is in your inbox if you're signed up for our email, um, receiving our emails. If you're not, you can go to info at Summit Drive and we will get you connected with those. Or you can just download it from our webpage. But here's another part that I'm really excited about too. Uh, I'm going to just, I just thought it would be great for us to do a video blog each week where you, if you have questions, either from the message or from the study that we're working on, you just send in your questions by about Tuesday, because Wednesday we'll um, do a short video blog where we'll take some of your questions that relate to our topic and answer them, and then we'll post those on YouTube for you to be able to access, either through our Facebook page, our um, email, or through our webpage. There'll be a link for you to follow along. So, after the message today, or after you've done your study, please send your questions to info at Summit Drive or to my personal account. You can check the description below for those. Now, I do find it interesting slash providential that in this moment, just in our rotation, we're back to this question of spiritual growth. And I think forming habits right now that bring us into the presence of God and, and get us ready to hear from Him and then live out into the world is exactly what we need. So I'm just so thankful to God that that's what we're looking into because we're answering the question. This is the question all of us need to be working through at this moment. How does God want to form me and us together during this time? Like, how do I align myself with His heart and His ways in a moment that seems so upside down? That's where we're going to focus. Over the coming weeks, we're going to focus on the sort of habits that God uses to form us, because if we're honest, we live in a world that is deforming if we just simply fall in line with the habits of, of the world around us. And that's why I landed on this title, Lovers in a Dangerous Time. I know, I have a propensity to borrow from song titles. And some of you will have recognized that that comes from the 1984 Bruce Coburn hit, and um, for some of you who might not be old enough to remember Bruce Coburn, he's one of the most iconic Canadian songwriters. And in fact, this song was um, ranked the number 11 most influential, most important Canadian song in our, uh, at least, modern history. You know, Coburn was initially inspired to write this song while he was just watching teenage romance unfold on a schoolyard. But it was during the time of the Cold War, like there was the threat of nuclear war that could break in at any moment, thus lovers, the young romantics, in a dangerous time. So the song begins like this, don't the hours grow shorter as the days go by? We never get to stop and open our eyes. That's important. We're going to key in on that today. One minute you're waiting for the sky to fall, next you're dazzled by the beauty of it all, lovers in a dangerous time. Now, these lovers have their attention fixed on their beloved, and it's all playing out in the situation of danger, but here's why I want us to focus on that phrase for the next month or so. If I had to summarize the meaning of Christianity in one sentence, it would go something like this. God, who has always existed in a love relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit, in need of nothing, completely complete in God's own self, yet desiring to share that love with us creates the world and us within it, to know and experience His love and then to share it with each other. And yet, humanity has rejected love on God's terms. 
has desired for ourselves to define ourselves apart from God, and that's what the Bible calls sin, to live apart from God and God's ways, and yet God in love so desired us back that he would let his life break apart on the cross so that anyone who trusts in him, who comes to him, who receives his grace could enter into that love relationship for all of eternity. I realize that's a long sentence. I realize, too, it could be filled in so much more, and it would actually need to be. But the emphasis on love, I don't think it's misplaced. There was a religious scholar who came to Jesus one day and said, Teacher, what is the most important commandment? Which in this Jewish context was essentially saying, Teacher, what is the meaning of life? And here's how Jesus answered Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Everything else Jesus is saying is an elaboration in one way or another on this central command to love God and love others. So lovers, that is who we are. That's what we were created to be. And as we talk about spiritual growth and fitness, it's about being formed so that we can flourish in love. It's all coming out of the design that God had for us from the beginning. And though love in our culture is often defined as a feeling, love in the Bible is defined as a commitment first and foremost, a commitment to the good of the other. It's a posture of heart that seeks the best for the beloved. So when you think about that phrase, everyday habits for faith formation, remember this is about love, that love relationship that God made you for. And it's about deepening that. And the result of this flourishing in our relationship with God is really played out in our relationships with one another. You see, the evidence of, of spiritual health and vitality, the evidence is in how we treat those around us, the way and the words. Do they reflect and resemble the very heart of God or not? That's the test of your spiritual health and vitality. So lovers, but more in a dangerous time. Now, it might seem that dangerous time uh, is the reference toward, well, the dangers of our world in the moment with regard to the pandemic. And we could talk about that. Indeed, how we respond to others in this moment, again, is a reflection of our spiritual health. To love our neighbor matters in this moment. But that's not the danger I want to talk about. Maybe the less obvious danger is this one that we might be less aware of. The danger is living a non-Eucharistic life in a non-Eucharistic world. And you might be thinking, what on earth does that mean? Um, well, it is Greek, and so I won't fault you for that. Uh, but Eucharisto is the Greek word that means, I give thanks. I give thanks. To give thanks, that's what Jesus does when he takes the bread and the cup 
and he tells his disciples to eat those things and that they actually represent his body and blood, which in a few hours from then would be broken on the cross out of love. He tells them and us to continue to eat that meal together, but here's where I want to focus for a second. That's why the Lord's Supper or communion is often called the Eucharist in many Christian traditions, because it means I give thanks, and that's what Jesus says as he offers it to them and now to us. And we're going to talk about that practice in more detail throughout this. It's a way of rehearsing and reminding ourselves of who we are because of whose we are, that we have been won by the love of God expressed in Jesus, His dying in our place and rising again, and so we would give thanks to Him. And we're going to look at that actual practice for sure, but the danger I want to point out is to live a non-Eucharistic life. That means a life without reference to God, without really paying attention to Him and giving Him thanks. The danger is we might live like God is not really there. That my next breath isn't a sheer gift. That's the non-Eucharistic life. And I don't think I'm alone in the experience where it's actually very easy to slide into a life that just doesn't have any reference to God. That's where the, uh, the, the, the phrase in a non-Eucharistic world, that's where that comes in. See, our our place, our moment right now in the late modern Western world is what Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls a secular age. Now, what he means by that isn't simply that our culture is pluralistic and people are free to worship um, the God or gods of their choosing or not to worship God at all. Um, That is one meaning for secular, but that's not what he's referring to. He's referring to the fact that the waters that we all swim in all the time, while the basic assumption is that there isn't a God, or if there is, that God is not really present and active in the world right now. Almost every dimension of our life is infused with that assumption, that God's simply not active. That's what Taylor calls a disenchanted world, the world that we inhabit right now. So if we are to live a Eucharistic life, life before the living God in thanks and to pour ourselves out in love to Him and others, we will be swimming against the tide to do so. It'll take a commitment, habits of the heart and mind and body that help us to lift our heads and retrain our focus on the one who loves us, to orient our lives around Him again. The Coburn song goes on to say it like this, nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. You got to kick against the darkness till it bleeds daylight. Boy, that's true on a number of levels. And that's why we need everyday habits for faith formation. Because we form habits, those are our everyday rhythms of life, our routines, our behaviors, and these habits in turn form us. You'll recognize that from maybe the habits of the food that we eat or the exercise that we do or don't do. Those habits form us into something. So do our spiritual habits. Paul says it like this in Colossians 2 verse 6. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, 
continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Notice, we have a role to play. It says, continue to live your lives in Him. That's an active, participating role by you and I. But it's all within Jesus. That's within the sphere of His love and His grace. It's what we're rooted in. It's Him that builds us up and strengthens us. Notice, too, the overflowing with thankfulness. That's the Eucharistic life. So the dangerous time, it's the pull toward a life that's inattentive toward apathy and forgetfulness about the presence and voice of God. And so staying rooted there in Christ, it will take some kind of fight. For as Dallas Willard famously put it, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. He means this, the habit of life that will help us grow will actually take effort on our part. And that's not a bad thing. Our efforts in no way are earning us favor with God. We aren't earning our acceptance. No way. That's a gift to us. That's what grace means. But to think that we have somehow no part in our growth, that it'll just happen, uh, that would be wildly naive. Here's how one writer puts it. He says, among the many ways 2020 has been punishing for pastors... One of the most disheartening is the way COVID-19 has further accelerated the already troubling tendency of Christians being shaped more by online life and its partisan ideological ecosystem than by church life and its formational practices. It was already an uphill battle for pastors before COVID, the digital age, And more broadly, our secular age has greatly expanded the horizon of ideas shaping Christians. The church is increasingly just one voice among many speaking into a Christian's life. Now, the writer goes on to clarify that, of course, the church shouldn't assume to be the only voice speaking into a Christian's life. Of course not. But now there are many hundreds and thousands of voices vying for our attention every single day day. He continues, in quarantine, Christians have been driven farther into a fully online existence. Drinking from the often toxic well of internet discourse in ways that poison their souls, largely devoid of meaningful immersion in Christian formative practices, Christians are instead being formed in whatever online echo chamber they call home. That's really what Paul was addressing off the top. That verse I looked at, he says, don't get involved in these godless sort of old wives' tales argumentativeness. He says, don't go that direction. Instead, pay attention to your spiritual fitness. Give your efforts here. I think we need to hear that afresh today. So the idea that there are threats to being formed into the likeness of Jesus, that's not new. The New Testament writers deal with that question for sure. But the present climate is replete with new challenges. And that's why I'm so happy that we are opening ourselves up to these formative practices which have helped grow believers in Jesus, well, from Jesus' very own time. And that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our morning. So who are we? We're lovers. 
Where are we? We really are in a dangerous time. But more, we are being formed by the gracious God of love. His Spirit is working in His people, and I've seen it. I've seen people growing through this moment too. Those who have chosen to look above the noise and say, God, what are you up to? have been growing in leaps and bounds this year, and that so encourages me. So let's keep pressing into that. We're going to focus on two key habits that Jesus himself models for us and practices, and then he says, come along, join me in them. Number one, we're going to look at solitude. In Luke chapter 5, um, Jesus has just healed a man with leprosy, and then there's more people who just keep coming and bringing, um, well, they're in need of healing as well. They want to get close to them. They're eager to see Jesus. Listen to verse 15. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. So what does Jesus do when the crowds begin to clamor for his attention? When he is the most relevant, sought-after person on the block, what does he do? Well, he capitalizes on the opportunity, right? He just revels in the limelight. Well, no, actually. Look at verse 16. It begins with this word, but. That's a really, really important word. But is a contrast word. It signals this instead of that. But, or instead of giving in to the pressure of his work or the pull of popularity, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places. The Greek word is eremos there, solitary places, lonely places, and prayed. Even Jesus required a pattern or a rhythm of life that regularly brought him to a quiet place where he could be still in the presence of his Father and rest and listen. There's a commitment that Jesus has to lonely places for prayer kind of living. Now, why on earth would I imagine that I don't need that same kind of rhythm of life, even though Jesus seems to, if I'm going to live faithful to God? So the first habit we're going to focus on is solitude. And I know the word isolation, that's become really um, in the forefront during the past year. Solitude is completely different than that. This isn't about being cut off from connection to others. No, solitude doesn't also mean somehow that our faith is now just individualized and privatized and that no one else is allowed in the room. That's, That's not what solitude is. Solitude is about making space in our head and our hearts, as well as a physical time of space during the day for being quiet and paying attention to God. The guidebook study, as you'll see if you check that out today, is about learning how to embody a rhythm that includes some solitude at points in your day. And we'll encourage you in that, so check that out. But I think there's more to this point than simply saying, well, Jesus took time out in a lonely place of solitude, so we should too. That's true. Jesus is setting an example for us, but we need to discover why Jesus does that so that we will have the reason for why we need to as well. You'll notice 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four biographies of Jesus' life, they all begin Jesus' public ministry with His baptism. Now, baptism for Jesus, that that signals His alignment and allegiance with God the Father. And look what happens at Jesus' baptism. Here's how Luke records it. This is Luke 3, 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as He was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. My Son who I love, with you I'm well pleased. Now consider at this point in Jesus' ministry, what has He done to earn that approval? What works has he accomplished? Healings? Hmm? Preaching? Nothing. Certainly the gospel writers don't speak of him doing anything in particular that would somehow God, the Father would say, yes, you've been successful and I can see it because in your evaluation form we could check off all these boxes. No, there is no record of Jesus' ministry prior to this moment. And yet, and still, Jesus hears these words from the Father, my Son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Before he achieved anything, without any particular record of success, he hears those words. We live in a world where maybe we feel that pressure to prove ourselves, feel a pressure to hustle, uh, attaching our sense of worth maybe to what we accomplish. We could too easily give in to the common view that you are what you do. You are defined by the, well, the works of your hands. But the good news or the Christian gospel can be summarized like this. Through our trust in Jesus, because He stepped into our place, He died in our place on the cross, and we know He is victorious over our sin because of His resurrection. We now, through trust in Jesus, hear the same words of the Father over us. You are my son, my daughter, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And we need to hear that again and again, that we are approved not because of our performance, but simply because God has been so gracious to us. Jesus gives us his perfect record, and now the Father sees us in the same way. The result? Well, we now live lives out of that place of approval. We live from acceptance, from approval, not for it. And that changes everything. A number of years ago, we read Tim Keller's little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It was our gift book, actually, um, 10 years ago, I think crazy as that sounds. He writes this, for most people, life feels like a court trial. Each day we look for a verdict that we're important and valuable from people around us. Some days we feel like we're winning, other days like we're losing. But no matter how well the day goes, we're back in the courtroom the next morning. In an honest moment, the iconic pop artist Madonna. She describes her trial like this. She says, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, 
I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Madonna has more fame, fans, and fortune than we ever will. But each morning, she finds herself back in the courtroom. That's how our identity works, says Keller. But then he shares the secret. Do you realize that it is only the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? Atheists may say they get their self-image from being a good person. People of other religions may say something similar. But by trusting in Jesus, you get the verdict before the performance. In Him, God has put Himself on trial and received our guilty verdict so that we would receive Jesus innocent, loved, approved. And so the moment we believe, God says, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Only that gives us the freedom to forget about ourselves and live life with lasting joy and approval, end quote. Truth be told, I have had to consistently kick against that kind of darkness. The darkness that says, boy, I really have to prove myself every day I wake up. No, what I need to do is to preach the gospel, the good news to my own heart, and remind myself that I'm approved of, and now I work from there. The reason I'm tempted to think like that is because there are other voices, enemy voices, in fact. We need to notice, directly after Jesus' baptism, it it tells us that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness. It's a lonely place again. Same Greek word, eremos. And here Jesus is fasting, like he's going without food, in fact, for 40 days without food. And he's hungry. Yeah, no kidding. During this time, it says that he's tested by the devil. And the word devil, that means adversary. That's the literal translation of his name. This is the one who's against Jesus and against you and I too. Listen to what the devil says to him. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Notice the devil, what's he doing? He's trying to make Jesus doubt his true identity of what his father just spoke to him. He says, if... If you're the Son of God, meaning, do you really think you are? Do you think you're really the Son of God? Prove it. Prove it now. Do this. Show it. (laughs) Don't we face that same kind of temptation? To disbelieve the gospel word over us? To feel like we maybe have to prove to God that we're worth being called His son or daughter? So Jesus is being asked to prove His title. But look at His response. He says this, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Um, in Matthew, uh, it's recorded the whole of Deuteronomy 8, 3, which goes on to say, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does Jesus do when He's tested, when He's tempted, especially to prove Himself? He responds by quoting the Scriptures. He has internalized what God has said so He can draw on it at any moment to speak back to the lies. That's where the first practice of solitude, that's where we get quiet. We listen to God speaking into our lives. We pay attention to His Word. That's where it overlaps with our second practice today, meditating. Now, the biblical authors speak about this practice of meditating on what God has said. In Psalm 19, verse 11, it says this, "'Your word I've hidden in my heart 
so that I might not sin against you. And then in verses 15 and 16, the writer goes on to say, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. This practice of meditation, it's very different than what um, our world often means or when we talk about Eastern practices of meditation. It's not the same. It's not emptying your mind. Rather, it is filling your mind with what God has done and what God has said. It's going over and over again by reading and hearing, churning over the stories of God's faithfulness in your mind so that it goes into your heart. It's rehearsing the words and the works of God, chewing on them so they get pushed deep into our imaginations and form how we live out of. It's learning to linger on what God has said. So you see, times of solitude are not just for being alone or being quiet, and that is good actually, but it's actually more. It's about putting aside distraction so we can really pay attention to God to whom God says we are, and to what God is saying to us in this moment. And when I talk about studying and reading the Bible, what I don't mean is simply gaining more information or knowledge about it, as good as that is, as important as that is. It's not like at the end of the day we're going to face the great Bible trivia game and somehow that's what God uh, is really interested for us. That wouldn't be true. It's about recovering a sense that the living God is speaking a living word to us, His beloved, as we open up the pages, as we listen. In his book, Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Disenchanted World, Mike Cospers, he writes this, he says, how often have you encountered someone whose knowledge of the Bible is encyclopedic, but whose presence is harsh, dark, or miserable? Who often... Uh, Or how often do you hear cliched stories about Christians with all the right answers that stiff waiters on their tips are horrible to their spouses or neighbors and who you wouldn't trust with your dog? His point, of course, is that the Bible is a means of God's transformative work by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not something simply to be known about, but a way to encounter the living God so that we are changed. God's Word needs to be ingested and become uh, like flesh and blood. The prophet Jeremiah, he says this to God, when your words came, I ate them, they were my joy and my heart's delight. Eugene Peterson, he goes on to describe this eating imagery, I think, really well. He says this, Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture, we assimilate it take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. Is that how you tend to view Bible reading? As something uh, taking into yourself that will change you? I I pray that you would this year. Of course, meditating on Scripture is not only for us to practice individually, and that's what we're doing when we get together with our life groups, when we're listening and worshiping through uh, the the words of of sermon and, and hearing the text together. That's what we're doing in worship. 
Uh, two weeks ago, Gerald mentioned that, uh, that I've been just working through the New Testament with a group of people um, through a reading group. I've got it up on Facebook, or you can find a link on our webpage. Love for you to join us. That might be just one way to begin to uh, set aside some time for solitude and then meditating on God's Word. And I try to form the questions so that they keep you focused on what the Scriptures say. I just keep asking questions about the text. And then asking, how is God speaking into your life from that Word? Invite you to join us. And, and there's other people, maybe you can call people, and I know Harry's going to be reading through the Bible in a year with people. Um, you can check that out in the bulletin. It'd be a great way to just get uh, drinking in what God has said to us. Here's the last thing I want us to see. Even after these events, Jesus in the wilderness has this showdown with the enemy, keeps coming back to the Scriptures. After Jesus' temptation in the desert, he actually keeps returning to these lonely places. It's not something that then goes away afterwards. Why? Well, Jesus gets into lonely places to focus his attention again on what his Father is saying to him especially about his mission in the world. In Mark chapter 1, we find that Jesus has he started to preach. He's been doing healings. He's gaining popularity. And then 135, we read this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. We read next that the disciples they went out to find him, and they, and they say, everybody's looking for you, which means, here's how William Lane puts it in his commentary, he says, what are you doing out here in this wilderness place? Like, you should be in the midst of the multitudes who are clamoring for you. But listen to Jesus and how he responds to them. He says, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. What happens when Jesus gets solitary and, and he prays? Well, he's reoriented around the mission which God has given him. He's able to resist the temptation to, to prove his worth, and here he does it again, uh, resisting what his disciples are saying. Come, be adored by the crowds. Come, uh, receive their adulation. Come, they need you. He's able to resist it because he's been listening to the voice of his Father who reminds him of his mission, and we need the same, that our eyes can drop from our purpose that God has called us to in the world when we stop paying attention to him. So what does it look like in everyday life? Again, check out the guidebook, but let me just give you a few ideas here. It's resting from the need to find validation or worth from the works of our hands. It's not about what you do what you have, what you're trying to get. It's about being. It's the question might come, am I a good mother? Or, hey, my sales are up. I'm finally making good money. Maybe I'm a valuable person now. Or I sure have, I, I, I'm sure I'm making a huge impact on other people now through my charity work or through my ministry. Now I know that I'm a somebody. What solitude for? It's for that. It's for addressing that for reconnecting us with our true identity, reminding us who we are, whose we are. It's for hitting the reset button as we refocus on our God-given mission. Solitude, taking time just to be with God, provides an opportunity for us to reflect on our lives as they really are, 
to evaluate, to take stock, maybe to repent and reorganize our lives so that we would function again listening to the voice of our Father. There was the back of a book that I read um, in 2015. It was a biography. I'm not going to tell you by whom. I flipped over the back of it, and, the, the, and, and it, this person writes about his experience of life. He says, I, I never analyze myself in case I don't like what I see. So this person's life is basically, I want to push aside any solitude or quiet because I might not like what I see. Solitude is the opposite of that. It's being honest and open with God. And even if we don't like what we see, we know that the good news of the gospel is that God forgives us, makes us new. That in Christ, He speaks this word over you and I. You are my beloved son or daughter. With you, I'm well pleased. Let's pray. And the worship team is going to come forward and lead in one more song. God, we thank you that there is this reality that through Jesus' finished work for us, we can be made your very own sons and daughters. And Lord, we pray with the psalmist that we would not neglect that time of meditating on your word each day, of making space to reflect on our life and invite you through prayer to be with us, to forgive us, to change us, to shape us. Maybe for those who are listening in, and for them this is all really new sounding, God, I pray that you would be doing a work in their heart, inviting them to come to a place of trust in you, that maybe for the first time today, they just need to open up their heart and say something like this, God, please forgive me. Thank you for your love. I trust your son Jesus and what he's done. I want to live in him so that I might live for him. And Father, I pray that you would just be working in all of us, that this year would be one marked with deep growth because of all you've done. Amen.